The Shrine of St Edmund by Jocelyn of Brakeland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the year of grace 1198, the glorious martyr Edmund was pleased to strike terror into our convent and to instruct us that his body should be kept more reverently and diligently than it had hereto been. There was a wooden platform between the shrine and the high altar, whereon stood two tapers, which the keepers of the shrine used to renew and stick together, by placing one candle upon the stump of another in a slovenly manner. Under this platform there were many things irreverently huddled together, such as flax and thread and wax and various utensils. In fact, whatever was used by the keepers of the shrine was put there, for there was a door with iron gratings. Now, when the keepers of the shrine were fast asleep on the night of St. Elfildra, part of a candle that had been renewed and was still burning fell as we conjecture, upon the aforesaid platform covered with rags. Consequently, all that was near, above or below began to burn rapidly, so much so that the iron gratings were at a white heat, and lo, the wrath of the Lord was kindled, but not without mercy, according to the saying, in wrath remember mercy. For just then the clock struck before the hour of matins, and the master of the vestry getting up observed and noticed the fire. He ran at once, and, striking the gong as if for a dead person, cried at the top of his voice that the shrine was consumed by fire. We then, all running tiver, found the fire raging wonderfully, and encircling the whole shrine, and almost reaching the woodwork of the church. Our young men, running for water, some to the well, some to the clock, some with their hoods, not without great labour, extinguished the force of the fire, and also stripped some of the altars upon the first alarm. And when cold water was poured upon the front of the shrine, the stones fell and were reduced almost to powder. Moreover, the nails by which the plates of silver were affixed to the shrine started from the wood, which had been burnt underneath to the thickness of my finger, and the plates of silver were left dangling one from the other without nails. However, the golden image of the majesty in front of the shrine, together with some of the stonework, remained firm and untouched, and brighter after the fire than it was before, for it was all of gold. It so happened, by the will of the highest, that at the time the great beam which used to be over the altar had been removed, in order to be adorned with new carving. It also happened that the cross, the small image of St. Mary and St. John, the chest with the shirt of St. Edmund, and the reliquaries and other shrines, which used to hang from the same beam, and other holy things, which also stood upon the beam, had every one of them been previously taken away. Otherwise all these would have been burnt, as we believe, even as a painted cloth was burnt which hung in the place of this beam. But what would it have been had the church been curtained? 
When, therefore, we had assured ourselves that the fire had in no place penetrated the shrine, by carefully inspecting the chicks and crannies, if there were any, and had perceived that all was cold, our grief in a great measure abated. But all at once some of our brethren cried out with a great wailing that the cup of St. Edmund had been burnt, and when many of us were searching here and there for the stones and plates among the coals and cinders, they drew forth the cup entirely uninjured, lying in the middle of the great charred timbers, which were then put out, and found the same wrapped up in linen cloth, half burnt. But the oaken box in which the cup was usually placed had been burnt to ashes, and only the iron bands and iron lock were found. When we saw this miracle, we all wept for joy. Now, as we observed that the greater part of the front of the shrine was stripped off, and abhorring the disgraceful circumstances of the fire, after a general consultation, we sent for a goldsmith, and caused the metal plates to be joined together and fixed to the shrine without the least delay to avoid the scandal of the matter. We also caused all traces of the fire to be covered over with wax or in some other way. But the evangelist testifies that there is nothing covered which shall not be revealed. For some pilgrims came very early in the morning to make their offerings. Who could have perceived nothing of the sort? Nevertheless, certain of them, peering about, inquired, where was the fire that they had heard had been about the shrine? And since it could not be entirely concealed, it was answered to those inquirers that a candle had fallen down, and that three napkins had been burnt, and that by the heat of the fire some of the stonework in front of the shrine had been destroyed. Yet for all this there went forth a lying rumour, that the head of the saint had been burnt. Some indeed contented themselves with saying that the hair only was singed, but afterwards, the truth being known, the mouth of them that spake the lies was stopped. All these things came to pass by God's providence, in order that the places round about the shrine of his saint should be more decently kept and that the purpose of the Lord Abbot should be sooner and without delay carried into execution, which was that the shrine itself, together with the body of the holy martyr, should be placed with greater security and with more pomp in a more dignified position. For, before this aforesaid mishap occurred, the cresting of the shrine was half finished, and the marble blocks whereon the shrine was to be elevated and was to rest, were for the most part ready and polished. The abbot, who at this time was absent, was exceedingly grieved at these reports, and he on his return home, going into the chapter house, declared that these and the like, nay, much greater perils might befall us for our sins, more especially for our grumbling about our meat and drink, in a certain measure turning the blame upon the whole body of the convent rather than upon the avarice and carelessness of the keepers of the shrine, to the intent that he might induce us to abstain from our pittances for at least one year, and to apply for at least one year the rents of the pittancy, for the purpose of repairing the front of the shrine with pure gold. He himself first showed us an example of the liberality by giving all the treasure of gold he possessed, namely fifteen gold rings worth, 
as it was believed sixty marks in our presence towards the reparation of the shrine we on the other hand all agreed to give our pittancy for such purpose but our resolution was afterwards altered by the sacrist saying that st edmund's could very well repair his shrine without such assistance at this time there came a man of great account but who he was i know not that related to the abbot a vision he had seen whereat he himself was much moved indeed he related the same in full chapter with a very bitter speech it is indeed true he said that a certain great man has seen a vision to wit that he saw the holy martyr st edmunds lie outside his shrine and with groans say that he was despoiled of his clothes and was wasted away by hunger and thirst and that his churchyard and the courts of his church were negligently kept the dream the abbot expounded to us all publicly laying the blame upon us in this fashion st edmund alleges that he is naked because you defraud the naked poor of your old clothes and because you give with reluctance what you are bound to give them and it is the same with your meat and drink moreover the idleness and negligence of the sacrist and his associates are apparent from the recent misfortune by fire which has taken place between the shrine and the altar on hearing this the convent was very sorrowful and after chapter several of the brethren met together and interpreted the dream after this fashion we they said are the naked members of st edmund and the convent is his naked body for we are despoiled of our ancient customs and privileges the abbot has everything the chamberlainship the sacristy the celery while we perish of hunger and thirst because we have not had our victuals save by the clerk of the abbot and by his ministration if the keepers of the shrine have been negligent let the abbot lay it to his own charge for it was he who appointed such careless fellows in such wise spoke many in the convent but when this interpretation of the dream was communicated to the abbot in the forest of harlow on his way from london he was very wroth and was troubled in mind and made answer they will rest that dream against me will they by the face of god so soon as i reach home i will restore them the customs that they say are theirs i will withdraw my clerk from the celery and will lead them to themselves and i shall see the fruits of their wisdom at the end of the year this year i have been residing at home and i have caused their celery to be managed without incurring debt and this is the way in which they render me thanks on the abbot's return home having it in purpose to translate the blessed martyr he humbled himself before god and man meditating within himself on how he might reform himself and make himself at peace with all men especially with his own convent therefore sitting in chapter he commanded that a cellarer and a subcellarer should be chosen by our common assent and withdrew his own clerk saying that whatsoever he had done he had done it for our advantage as he called god and his saints to witness and justified himself in various ways hear o heaven the things i speak give ear o earth to what abbot samson did 
the feast of St Edmund now approaching, the marble blocks were polished, and everything made ready for the elevation of the shrine. The feast day having therefore been kept on a Friday, a free day's fast was proclaimed on the following Sunday to the people, and the occasion of the fast was publicly explained. The abbot also announced to the convent that they should prepare themselves for transferring the shrine, and placing it upon the high altar, until the mason's work was finished, and he appointed the time and the manner for doing this work. When we had that night come to matins, there stood the great shrine upon the altar empty within, adorned with white doe skins above, below and round about, which were fixed to the wood by silver nails. But one panel stood below, by a column of the church, and the sacred body still lay in its accustomed place. Lords having been sung, we all proceeded to take our disciplines. This being performed, the Lord Abbot and those with him vested themselves in albs, and approaching reverently, as it was fit they should, they hastened to uncover the coffin. First, there was an outer cloth of linen, overwrapping the coffin and all. This was found tied on the upper side with strings of its own. Within this was a cloth of silk, and then another of linen cloth, and then a third. And so at last the coffin was uncovered, standing upon a tray of wood, that the bottom of it might not be injured by the stone. Affixed to the outside, over the breast of the martyr, lay an angel of gold, about the length of a man's foot, holding in one hand a golden sword, and in the other a banner. Underneath it there was a hole in the lid of the coffin, where the ancient custodians of the martyr had been wont to lay their hands for the purpose of touching the sacred body, and over the figure of the angel was this verse inscribed: Matrius Echezoma servant Michaelis Angelma. Behold the martyr's body St. Michael's image keeps. At the two heads of the coffin were iron rings, as they used to be on Danish chests. So raising up the coffin with the body, they carried it to the altar, and I lent thereto my sinful hand to help in carrying it, although the abbot had strictly commanded that no one should approach unless he was called. The coffin was placed within the shrine, and the panel was put thereon and fastened down. Now we all began to think that the abbot would exhibit the coffin to the people on the octave of the feast, and would replace the sacred body before all of us. But we were sadly deceived, as the sequel will show, for on Wednesday, while the convent was seeing Compline, the abbot spoke with the sacrist and Walter the physician, and it was resolved that twelve brethren should be appointed, who were strong enough to carry the panels of the shrine, and skilful in fixing and unfixing them. The abbot then said that it had been the object of his prayers to see his patron saint, and that he wished to join with him the sacrist and Walter the physician when he looked upon him. And there were also nominated the abbot's two chaplains, the two keepers of the shrine, and the two keepers of the vestry, with six others, Hugh the sacrist, Walter the physician, Augustine, William of Dis, Robert, and Richard. The convent being all asleep, these twelve vested themselves in albs, and drawing the coffin out of the shrine, carried and placed it upon a table near where the shrine used to be, and commenced unfastening the lid, which was joined and fixed to the coffin with sixteen very long iron nails. When, with considerable difficulty, they had performed this, 
all were ordered to go further away except the two forenamed associates. Now the coffin was so filled with the sacred body, both in length and width, that even a needle could hardly be put between the head and the wood or between the feet and the wood. The head lay united to the body, somewhat raised by a small pillow. The abbot, looking attentively, next found a silk cloth veiling the whole body, and then a linen cloth of wondrous whiteness, and upon the head a small linen cloth, and after that another small and very fine silken cloth, as if it had been the veil of some nun. Lastly, they discovered the body, wound round with a linen cloth, and then it was that all the lineaments of the saint's body were laid open to view. At this point, the abbot stopped, saying he durst not proceed further, or view the holy body naked. Taking the head between his hands, he sighed and spoke thus, Glorious martyr, St. Edmund, blessed be the hour wherein thou wast born. Glorious martyr, turn not my boldness to perdition, for that I, miserable sinner, do touch thee, for thou knowest my devotion and my intention. And proceeding, he touched the eyes and the nose, which was very massive and prominent. Then he touched the breast and arms, and raising the left arm, he touched the fingers and placed his own fingers between the fingers of the saint. Proceeding further, he found the feet standing stiff up, like the feet of a man who had died that day, and he touched the toes, in touching counting them. It was then proposed that the other brethren should be called forward in order that they might see these wonders, and six being thus called approached, and also six other brethren with them who had stolen in without the abbot's assent, and saw the saint's body, namely Walter of St Albans, Hugh the Infirmerer, Gilbert, brother of the prior, Richard of Hingham, Jossel the Cellarer, and Thurston the Little, who alone put forth his hand and touched the feet and knees of the saint, and the Most High so ordering it, that there might be abundance of witnesses, one of our brethren, John of Dis, sitting upon the roof of the church with the servants of the vestry, saw all these things plainly enough. All this being done, the lid was fastened down on the coffin with the same and with the same number of nails, and in like manner as before, the martyr being covered up with the same cloths and in the same order as he was when first discovered. Finally, the coffin was placed in the accustomed place, where there was put upon the coffin, near to the angel, a certain silken bag, wherein was deposited a schedule written in English, containing certain salutations of Alwyn the monk, as is believed, which schedule was found close by the golden angel when the coffin was uncovered. By the abbot's order, there was forthwith written another short memorandum, also deposited in the same bag, in the following form of words. In the year of the incarnation of our Lord, 1198, the abbot Samson, upon the impulse of devotion, saw and touched the body of St. Edmund, on the night after the feast of St. Catherine, these being witnesses, and thereto were subscribed the names of the eighteen monks. The brethren also wound the whole coffin up in a suitable linen cloth and over the same placed a new and valuable silken cloth which Hubert, Archbishop of Canterbury, had offered at the shrine that very year 
and they placed lengthwise a certain linen cloth doubled under it and next to the stone to prevent the coffin or the tray whereon it stood from being injured by the stone afterwards the panels were brought forth and properly joined together on the shrine when the convent assembled to sing matins and understood what had been done all those who had not seen these things were very sorrowful saying among themselves we have been sadly deceived however after matins had been sung the abbot called the convent to the high altar and briefly recounting what had been done alleged that he ought not to call and could not call all of them to be present on such occasion hearing this with tears we sang te diem laudamus and hastened to ring the bells in the choir on the fourth day after the abbot deposed the keepers of the shrine and the keeper of st boltoff appointing new ones and establishing rules so that the holy places should be more carefully and diligently kept he also caused the great altar which heretofore was hollow and wherein many things were irreverently stowed away and that space which was between the shrine and the altar to be made solid with stone and cement so that no danger from the fire could arise by the negligence of the keepers as had already been the case according to the saying of the wise man who said happy is he who learns caution from the danger of others End of the shrine of st edmund by jocelyn of breakland read for librivox.org by melanie t